welcome to the mad ones i'm your boy my beard is getting woolly and it's but it's going to be a year a year so chill host cam harless and with me as always is your owns a vintage globe so you don't you dare question her about geography hostess miss <laughs> jessica green yeah that's my standard response to any stupid question now is that you shouldn't question me because i own a vintage globe i mean which it's, is it's a good reason right it's it's a uh, copy pasta and it's weird and it doesn't make sense so but the funny part about it is I don't actually own a globe. So, yeah, if you watch you're, the show, you're, you're more of a flat earther. So it's more of a disc, right? Right, right. right. That's totally okay. me. Totally. Flat um, earth. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am excited about this conversation tonight and have been for a little bit. Um, but before we get to it, I do want to let you know this show is 100 percent brought to you by fans and patrons. So hit like, subscribe and share the show with your friends. We've had all sorts of topics we've covered. We've talked to some really cool people. Uh, so share them with someone who might gain something from them. Um, also join our Patreon for the occasional early episode, Zoom hangout, and Jessica's eternal gratitude. So to do that, <laughs> hit up uh, patreon.com slash themadones. And if you want a shirt, you should have a shirt. Uh, you can go to wearethemadones.com slash store, and you can rep us wherever you go. Normally at this point, I would start the introduction to the guest, but he has disappeared at this moment. So he's actually out camping and he's trying to um, communicate with the internet via his telephone. It's not going great. So we're kind of stalling from time. But I would like to say eternal gratitude. That's a long time. It is. I don't know, guys. That seems just like a really long time. But isn't it just the easiest thing in the world to be like, yeah, I'm thankful for that. For eternity? For all time. For all time, that it time. just seems like a, it just seems like a lot to promise. That's all. I mean, <laughs> you know, I guess. Uh, so since we're we're waiting and hopefully he he shows back up. If not, um, I don't I don't know what we'll do. Maybe we'll just take some questions and then next week's episode becomes yeah, one forty nine. Can... I don't know because I I think I'm not prepared to do a full episode. If yeah, we're kind of just doing right this now. on the fly. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, like we could, but I don't know if anyone would want to we, we could talk about my about some stuff oh look there he is so it doesn't <laughs> look like he's back so there we go i'm gonna leave that in everyone's gonna have to wonder um but joining us tonight is uh the once guitarist of the heavily loved stoner metal band sleep which happens to be my wife's favorite band and she told me she'd kill me if i didn't mention that um as they were becoming more prominent he left the adulation and the punk punk prestige to become an orthodox monk He's a punkifier of hymns, the creator of the zine Death to the World, and the author of Youth of the Apocalypse. It's Mr. Justin Marler. How are you doing, man? I'm doing amazing. Look at me. I'm out in nature. Life's good. It looks good. I, I, like when you told me that you were going to be out in, a, out in the boondocks, I was like, I want to be in the boondocks. <laughs> it's very pretty. Yeah. So, so like I, like I Place said, to be it's Texas. It's, what was that? Uh, I got Longhorn right behind me. Nice. Oh, <laughs> so it smells good too. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, so my wife brought my attention to you and you, you had a conversation with someone on a podcast recently talking about your story, which I, I found completely fascinated, fascinating and wanted to talk to you about, of course, I'm sure at this point in your life, you've probably told this story ad nauseum. You're probably done with telling the story in some sense. Uh, so I, I, I want to make sure that as we're having this conversation, we open up little new doors and maybe have a little fun with with all of that. Um, but I really appreciate you coming on. 
because it's not every day you hear of someone who is in a uh, the underground music scene when all of those big bands start coming out and the one guy just leaves and goes and lives in a monastery. It's it's very unique and fascinating. So I, I'm, I'm excited to talk to you. And I also I kind of want to dig in since I've read um, I've read, I think, most of Youth of the, of the Apocalypse so far. And when I was reading it, there was a very like Gen X feel and, you know, people who were raised and grew up in the 70s kind of feel to it. And there's been a lot of change since then. And I, I do want to kind of pick your brain on uh, where we are today and how you might have written that book had you been a millennial or even Gen Z. So just to let you know, that's, that's a where great we're going. question. That's a fantastic <laughs> question. Cool. Awesome. Well, well, let's, I, I do want to kind of um, let people know who you are because I, I, I was talking to someone the other day uh, because they were listening to a podcast that my friend was on and the, the host of that podcast just acted like everyone knew who my friend was. And so uh, a person who'd never heard of her before got on there and was listening to it and gave up after five minutes because they're like, I don't know who this person is. So I figure <laughs> let's let's start there. Let's start at your genesis and um, get into some of that that story, um, because I like I said, you were in the you were in the band Sleep uh, for their first album, part one, and then you left. So if we can go through it in in a fun way because i'm sure like i said you're probably tired of telling the story uh but how did you get into sleep and then from there how did you decide to live in a monastery for seven years sure um so i was uh, exper experimenting with music i was very into songwriting and um you know untrained musician and i wanted to get in i listened to metal and, and punk and i wanted to get into a band so i moved to the bay area and after sleeping on mats at clubs, uh, you know, for free because I was homeless for a while there, um, this band, Asbestos Death, was going to play there. And it turns out that they were looking for a guitar player. So I tried out and I got the gig. And uh, my first thought to them was, I, I like your music a lot. It's really good. It's unique and in innovative. But the name Asbestos Death is terrible. <laughs> and I was like, can you guys changing the name? It's way too much like Napalm Death and all that. And they were yeah. like, yeah, we're open to that a new, a new lineup, a new name. That sounds cool. So we batted a bunch of ideas around and landed up on sleep. Um, and that was largely Al's idea. I, my idea was sleep deprivation. And he just narrowed it down to sleep. And he, when he said that, it was like a light bulb went off. It's like sleep. It's so prosaic. And yeah. the music is so not prosaic. <laughs> um, kind of made sense, you know. And then, you know, we spent a lot of time in the studio. We stayed actually at my grandmother's house for about a month. She let us stay there and rehearse every day for a month before the recording of Volume One, the first record. Mm -hmm. And uh, she would uh, tell us, you know, turn the amps off when I come home from work. That's all I ask. Just turn off. It's so damn loud. You got to turn it off. So we did that for a month. We went into the studio and recorded. At this point in my life, for that you know year, I would say I was severely suicidal. Um, mm -hmm. I, I really hated conventional life. I hated the status quo. I hated the government. I hated myself. Um, I hated religion um, and I needed to figure something out. And so while we were recording in that studio, I had this tremendous migraine while I was singing and I just got a hair in my head. Like after this, this recording, I got to get out of here and I got to do something different. Otherwise I'm going to end up killing myself. So I ended up um, going back to my hometown. I ran into a nun and um, she changed my life to this day, you know, I, I, running into a, a, a wise woman 
that's very pious and very kind um, transformed my life forever. And uh, that led me to going into a monastery. I didn't go to a convent. I went to a monastery. <laughs> and, uh, and I spent seven years there um, just completely detached from the world. Yeah. Um, so you, when you, so one of the things that's, it seems like in the past, as I was growing up, mental health issues were overlooked or stigmatized and not talked about very much. So if someone was suicidal, you didn't typically find that out until after they were dead. Mm -hmm. Like there, that, that there was just not a lot of conversation around it. And today we are at like the opposite of the pendulum with that, where people are claiming, especially young people, Gen, Gen Z, are claiming um, all of these mental illnesses in like the bios of their social media apps. Like here, this is this is my litany of problems. Um, yeah. And so I, I think it's that's that's what really struck me as I was reading through some of Youth of the of the Apocalypse because I felt like it was kind of it was it was needed in that time but also sort of before its time in talking about these issues and their roots um would you yeah. mind me asking kind of what your history was and why you were suicidal at that point in your life what was the the, the soul sickness that was going on there oh my gosh um growing up an american in the 70s and 80s is just it yeah. <laughs> you know we're we up and up and through this very day we are raised in a culture that's saturated with self-pleasurement lack of philosophical worldview um complete self-indulgence I mean, the term of binge watching a program really bothers me it's the uh -huh. exact opposite of what a monk would do <laughs> you know <laughs> our culture doesn't help us and train us and teach us to understand our thoughts and our feelings when kids gr grew up back in the day in Buddhist countries, all this stuff was built into their system. And there were actually countries where these kids would be expected when they were a certain age to go into a monastery for one or two years before they did anything with their life. Um, we don't have that in our culture. All we have is MTV and Disneyland and alcohol and drugs and skateboarding and all this stuff that is complete empty pursuits. And so as I was growing up, my soul was completely dead. No one taught, taught me about my soul. No one taught me that my soul needs nourishment and food. And no one helped me understand my thoughts and my feelings. So, so when I entered the monastery, I was at the, the brink of complete self-implosion because of all of that. It was a, the summation of that journey as an American kid. And what I learned in the monastery is they completely understand the soul and the mind, the will and the heart of a person to a T. The church fathers in ancient times understood this so well. And we are completely void of this information. And so when I encountered it, um, I dove in because it was the answer to everything, you know, that I wasn't given as an American kid. Yeah. Um, so you, you, when you met this, this nun who was an Orthodox nun, um, how did you meet her? Was this a chance encounter? Was this, did you go into an Orthodox church and run into her? How did, how did this happen? How did God make that happen? Great question. Uh, it was in my small town of Chico. So there was no churches, Orthodox churches there. They're, you know, Catholic and Protestant and everything. Um, but there was an Orthodox bookstore as a little outpost where they were selling church fathers and icons and crosses. And I, I was skateboarding by and I, it, it just, the imagery just struck me and it drew me in. And when I entered the place, there was this nun and there was also a dwarf, a, a woman named Platnita, God rest her soul. And I was standing there looking into this 
store with these icons and everything, all this imagery and a dwarf and a nun. And I was like, this is my world. This is cool. Like whatever this is, it's so different. I want this, you know? So I went in yeah. there and I argued theology with her. I didn't know anything I was talking about, but I thought I knew everything. Cause you know, when you're 18 and 19 and 20, you know, everything. God, that's so true. Uh, yeah. And, and, um, uh, <laughs> She just lovingly schooled me on everything, church history and theology, and my perception of everything started to, um, my worldview started to get formed deliberately for the first time in my life. And now go back to uh, how I ended up there to the suicide and everything. We all have worldviews, and this is something that's not taught directly ever, you know, in our culture. We all have world worldviews, and we form them whether we know it or not, and our environment is forming it whether, whether we know it or not. And the worldview that we have given these younger, this younger generation is the one that we were just talking about, which is basically hopeless nihilism. That's, that's pretty much the summation of the worldview. And when I met her, my worldview started to actually form in a correct or healthy, um, you know, spiritually healthy way. Um, and I pushed back at, on that. You know, it was not easy for me to let down my presuppositions about, you know, at that time it, you had these Protestant, you know, teachers on television televangelists that were milking grannies for their money you know and yeah. and so much hypocrisy in most religions that it was really hard for me to stomach at first but i knew that since i was three i committed myself to christ that that was a, a given even though i didn't call myself a christian at that point i i knew that jesus was the answer and i was committed to that and through that little crack in angry shell she kind of got to me and started helping me uh, figure things out. Okay. I, I have a question. I, I love when you said that she lovingly schooled you. I think that's a concept that we're so desperate to like, it's, it's the sweet spot when you can really communicate with someone. And so often nowadays people are yelling at each other and yelling past each other. Do you yeah. have a way to describe how she was able to speak to you being as angry as you were and, and as you said, um, not willing to, um, uh, you know, you said you didn't like religion at that point, but meeting this nun changed that perspective. Can you kind of like tell us how she was able to do that? I'll, I'll do it from her vantage point first. She probably thought okay. I was a stupid young kid <laughs> that God and her approach to me was she would listen to me and be patient. And honestly, I think the key is non-judgmental. She knew that all, everything that I was espousing was not accurate or not true or philosophically wrong or even politically wrong, whatever it was. But she didn't come back at me with judgment or accusations or even correction. She lived, I, I would say, the gospel in a, a sweet, humble way, but she wouldn't give on certain things. That, and that, that is the core beliefs of the Orthodox, the Christian faith. Um, and, and she wouldn't give on them, but she wasn't aggressive about it. She would just say, well, you know, in my opinion, this is probably more accurate and more true. And she would say, just reflect on that and be open, be open. And I was like, man, she doesn't judge me. I'm coming in here with, with tattoos and a bad background and all this. And she doesn't care. She doesn't care at all. She just wants to talk to me about God. And yeah. I'm up for that. I think that's, that's the thing that's missing pretty much in our culture all around is everyone hates the other we're so divided and I don't want to, I don't go into politics at all, but we're, we're, we're terribly divided and terribly judgmental and every, everyone calls the other side or the other person evil. And right. we have to do that. We have to not do that. We have to stop ourselves and implement the virtues, virtue, 
we our culture is is completely void of virtue and the virtues that she was demonstrating to me were um empathy kindness lack of judgment um compassion and that's how she broke down my my uh, my my force field um right. i do want to say that list that you just named uh reminds me a lot of the fruit of the spirit so love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control like these are this is this is what you're you're describing which is the fruit of the spirit which is also love i mean you can kind of be described in a roundabout way as love and that's natural states of the soul that's what the soul wants and our yeah. culture look at self-control for example we don't believe in self-control we right. think self-control is 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 stupid. It's it's not going to benefit you. I mean, it, these things are are intrinsic to how the soul needs to feel and be. And if it doesn't have those things, the soul starts to deteriorate. You know, and that's why mm -hmm. our culture has so many issues with addiction, depression, anxiety, um, anger, hatred. You know, all these things. So yeah, the fruits of the spirit. I mean, that's exactly what they are. Yeah. <laughs> and the spirit, they don't have them. They wither. And they die and then we die well and that's and that's what's so interesting about it is like you, you're talking about this nun and you there was the the lady that's a dwarf and i it, it just strikes me as beautiful how god reaches out to all of us in some way um and speaking on you talking about how this is what our soul craves of essentially is you know that's that's why i think i've had so many conversations with people when they describe human nature in such a way that it is evil. And I'm like, that's not what we were intended for. We yeah. were intended for deep connection with God, deep connection with others, deep yeah. connection with the earth. Like there's all of that to it. Um, but one of the things that, that I found interesting is I was talking to a friend of mine. Uh, we were talking about God and how, you know, when he finally came, became a Christian, he came in with this concept of who God was and it, you know, it was based off of his worldview. It was based off of how his father was. It was based off of, uh, well, particularly for him, an absent father. Um, but he, one of the things he said that shattered everything was he started reading about Jesus. He started reading about what Jesus was, who he was, what he said, and how he treated people. And he was taken aback by the character of Jesus. And he said he kept reading and he was like, I really love this Jesus guy, but I don't like this old Testament God guy. Yeah. Cause this is <laughs> he, obviously in his mind, these are two different people and he gets, he, he reads on and he comes to the, the point where he realized, or he reads and sees that Jesus is the perfect image of God. And so he said that his worldview was completely shattered in that moment because he, when he was talking about God in these horrible ways, he was actually just talking about his dad. Yeah, yeah. And that was healing he had to deal with. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I, I just love that there are these, like, it, it, sometimes it takes a, a dwarf and a nun. Um, sometimes it takes uh, getting kicked out of an internet atheist community. Um, sometimes it just takes, you know, your parents telling you about it when you're three and you just being so interested that you spend your whole life talking about it and thinking about it and breaking down all the false yeah. places in your own theology yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah I, so, I find yeah i also find it very interesting that you're skating on your skateboard and it's the icons that catch you yeah um as an orth i'm orthodox christian and um coming 
to understand the icons and communicating with icons. That's the most striking part of that story to me is you're rolling along with your tattoos and your anger and your skateboard. And then bam, just like a, like a fish getting caught with a hook, that icon just reached out and communicated with you is what it sounds like to me. And I find that one of the most compelling parts of the story. And there's a, there's a dwarf there. And I still find the most compelling part of the story is the icon. Well, I, I grew up as an artist since I was, I could even walk. I've been drawing and doing art and I'm a graphic designer. I've, you know, been in that field for years, um, book design and cover design and everything. So I'm a graphic person. And so is my wife. She's also covered in tattoos. We like graphics, you know, we like imagery. Yeah. And it really frustrated me when I was younger, when people would tell me that um, you can't depict Jesus, yeah. the graven image mm -hmm. thing. You the Old Testament. And it really bothered me. Like, I, I didn't understand that at all. It didn't make sense to me because it's so God manifests himself in the world. You know, he was here. Right. You know, I, yeah. I get the Old Testament and and God, the Father and the Holy Spirit. We, we're, not, we're not sure, you know, how to depict that or if it's even depictable, you know. But Jesus was here. And I, I just it bothered me. And the idea that you couldn't wear a cross like I was raised with a I think it was a Calvary Baptist thing where all those things were not allowed. Right. And and when I saw the icons and they said and that was one of the first discussions I had with the nun is you can't have images. That's wrong. It says it in the Old Testament. And she came back with her humble humility and her you know precision accuracy with her theology and explained that to me. And I was like, thank God we can have we can have images. We can have crosses. This is amazing. I believe yeah. what you're saying. Is true. I like that. And then at the, on top of it, she shows me a book. Um, I, f I forget what it's called. Northern Thebite, maybe or something. And then there's images of these monks with, with schema outfits on and big beards. And that image hooked me too. I was like, those people really do that? They dress like that? Yeah. You guys have those photographs of these people from the late 1800s, early 1900s. All of that stuff just became like a universe of just glory to me that was so compelling, which also translates all the way up through sleep to, to, to today, you know, Al, the bass player and singer for sleep he's come to the monastery many times and the imagery is used in a lot of their stuff um you know yeah. covers of, of own magazines or uh, record covers and all that kind of stuff and it's the same thing for him too is it's so compelling that these people give up their life which is kind of hard to wrap mm -hmm. your head around first and then they also just look so freaking amazing when they do right. it <laughs> <laughs> i do want to say something about um and al um, when I started dating my wife, she was a big fan of Ulm. Okay. And I would see these album covers and I'd see the Orthodox iconography and I'd be like, but the name of the band was Ulm. Uh -huh. And some of the, and you know, uh, I would read some of the words and the titles and I'm like, that seems Hindu. And I was so confused about this situation. Yeah. And so when, when I first heard about you and listened to that, that interview with you, I was like, oh, this makes sense now because it didn't make sense before. <laughs> he, so all religions really, well, not all religions. He draws from a few specific religions for his worldview. And he, he doesn't like to talk too specifically about it, but he greatly values um, Jesus and his teachings. Um, yeah. Obviously he wouldn't call God is good on a record cover, you know? Right. I mean, that's a commitment. And I thought when he sent that to me, he sent the LP to me when it first came out. And I thought, oh, this is the death of him. He's never doing music again. And it worked. <laughs> and yeah. I think it worked because of what we were talking about. There's something inside the soul that wants to say that, you know? Yeah. yeah.
absolutely. I, I'm also very compelled about the idea of joining a mon monastic life. Um, it's as someone like you who is an American kid um, who's kind of like raised on the idea of individualism being the, like the top value you can have to totally give yourself into the obedience and care of another person or the church entirely. You're a person who's like steeped in rebellion. You're in this punk band. You've got these tattoos like that's part of who you are. Yeah, you're sleeping you, on a on a mat next to Billy Joe Armstrong. <laughs> and then you decide to commit to the monastic life. Um, when you first were doing that, what was that like for you? Was it like difficult? Did it like did you chafe underneath it? Like how did it affect you? Can can I throw in one question just before that? Oh, sure, sure. Uh, which is um, how did you get to the monastery? Oh, um, because yeah, I skipped you know, ahead. I'm it, sorry. <laughs> no, you're good. I just I just want to make sure all the the pieces are in there. I don't want to miss that because I, I heard a little touch of it in one of the interviews and I'm like, I want to get into for that sure. for sure. So did you just drive up to a monastery one day and decide to join or <laughs> how did that happen? Because you you met the nun, you started going down that path. How did you get into the monastery? And then let's definitely talk about what Jessica's talking about as well. Yeah dovetail really well. So when I found out that I could actually visit being a worldly kid that, you know, wasn't even baptized or anything, she was like, yeah, you can visit. You just have to participate in the monastic life. Um, so it was wintertime. I, I drove up there with a friend. Our car broke down at the bottom of this mountain. The monastery is on the top of the mountain in Northern California. And we walked through the snow for, it seemed like days, but it was probably just more like, you know, three or four hours. Um, and we show up there and my intention was only to just get exposed to it and see what it was. And it, it, it so moved me the first, I would say, week being there that I, I just I didn't want to leave. And I asked the abbot of the monastery, um, you know, if I could stay. And he said, sure, you know, just keep participating, getting up for church services and join the monks for meal times and work for, you know, work with with the monks. And at a certain point, I knew that my soul was just dying for this. Now, to your question. Um, my, 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 my biggest hangup actually, it was really funny they, they were reading in trapeze during, um, you know, breakfast, they always read spiritual books during, um, when they're eating and the, the word Arius came up and I was anti-Aryan, you know, the whole skinhead thing. I was very opposed to that. And I got, I was hung up by that. Like, who's Arius? Like, why you guys got right. Arius? Like, who's, <laughs> what are we talking about? White pride nationalists? So I took one of the monks aside and I was like, okay, I got a problem. I got my first big problem. Right. Are you guys like, you know, white Aryans, you know, right. people? <laughs> I heard serious. Don't get me wrong. I heard it. And he's like, oh my goodness. No, God, God, everyone is a child of God, no matter who you are, where you are, what skin color you are. And he, he explained to me who Arius was. And I was like, oh, okay. Phew. And after that hang up, I had no more hangups. Like that individualism that you're talking about. I was so blown away by the, the punk, the punkness of those monks that I thought that they, from the very beginning, I thought they were the true punks. They were truly, <laughs> truly rejecting the world in a way that was profound. You know, they didn't shower, they stunk. They ate really terrible food. They could care <laughs> less who was president. When I was there for seven years, I had no idea who the president of the United States was. You know, they don't want politics. They want 
um, formation and connection with Christ, period. And they'll do it at all costs. And I saw that very quickly as the most rebellious thing anybody could do. So that wasn't even a question for me. It, it almost like answered itself very quickly. Hmm. Yeah, we have a friend who was um, uh, Nick, who was into the punk scene pretty heavily. Um, and, you know, when, when we've had conversations, we've talked about punk music and how in a lot of ways it's kind of died off. People will say punk is dead. And Nick always shoots back with punk's not dead. It's homeschooling and it's homesteading. Like it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it moved on because I mean, you, if you look at the, the current zeitgeist, if you look at these punks and anti-authoritarians and all of this, like right now, I don't, I've never seen, I, you, you wouldn't think that you would see those people who railed against the machine so quickly joining and fighting for it. And so we live in this really weird time, but I feel like maybe if you boil that down is uh, sometimes people get older and they lose their passion and only care about their safety and comfort or something like that. <laughs> with your friend i think punk is dead it got usurped by pop culture when you have yeah. a strip mall that has hot topic in there selling kennedy t-shirts it's over it's finished. <laughs> yeah and that was my take i've always said you know punk is dead it's been dead and why are why are we still doing it <laughs> well here's here's why why i believe punk is dead there there i still have friends that are punk that really adhere to it. One of them would be Ian Mackay, the guy from Fugazi and Minor Threat. He's, he still adheres to his punk uh, ethos, totally, 100%. And there are others like him out there, but they are partly dead to this world and they don't even, they don't really notice it in that way. They don't call it that, but they are partly dead to this pop culture, this, you know, status quo. Yeah, They do exist, but punk as a thing got completely usurped by by popular culture and it just got integrated when you have blink 182 being on the radio i mean it's i'm sorry it's gone okay. it's over yeah it got it got corporatized um which is the fun yeah. like it, what what sweet irony is that like it's kind it's of amazing it's kind of impressive it's, <laughs> it's kind of what the thing also is takes something good and flips it on its head and makes it bad <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> Oh man. But yeah, no, it's, it's, it's just incredible to me to see the work you've done. And, uh, you know, you, you went through some of it, I think on one, on the conversation I saw you have about how you, you talked about how you wake up early, you eat bad food. They, they read, uh, spiritual books, which is such a good thing. I think that there are a lot of people and one of the things I've told a lot of people, even on this show, is you need to do your spiritual reading. And I don't just mean the Bible. I mean, you need to dig into theology and commentaries and, and sayings of the, of the church fathers. You need to get into these things and you need to wrestle with God and you need to grow and you need to learn. You need to see where your, your failings are. Um, and so like, that's a really great thing to hear. And also, I also think it's funny about Arius because that was the guy that, uh, St. Nicholas allegedly punched. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just such a great story. <laughs> yeah. All that kind of stuff. The early church martyrs, that, that scene from St. Nicholas and the, the, um, the, the council. Um, there are so many anecdotes, which is why we started death of the world. I, I was so blown away by these, this endless, river of really cool stories that were true that, that weren't fiction which really was mind-blowing that i wanted to kind of put them out there you know 
Um, but yeah, that, that story is on my top 10 list for sure. Um, oh yeah. St. Nicholas actually, when my kids were old enough, I sat them down and I told them who real Santa was. Well, I always told them, but they didn't get it because they were so, you know, inoculated by what was around them in our environment. But at mm -hmm. a certain point, they, they, they got it. And they're like, okay, this whole thing is a sham. And that was a real guy. He was, sounds like he was pretty brutal. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Brutally well, awesome. <laughs> brutally well, what, what, yeah. Oh yeah. Um, what, what I, I, when we, we did an episode last December on St. Nicholas mm -hmm. and, you know, I floated, a, a, a several different, um, titles and one of the titles that we didn't use for the episode was, um, the bearded brawler, yeah. the, I, I, you know, like the, I forget what it was. There was, there were, it was a three part alliteration, but yeah, I mean, that's how I think of him. Um, but one of the things that you mentioned is, um, kind of this hopeless nihilism and growing up in the seventies, the eighties, things like that. And, you know, I, I'm a millennial. I was born at the end of the eighties lived. I lived through the, the satanic panic. I was told that Dungeons and Dragons was evil and would take you to hell. You know, we, we heard all of <laughs> yeah. these stories every, like we all thought like here one, this is kind of a crass thing to say, but it's something that I was told when I was a kid and I believed wholeheartedly. Like I always believed that even if I went into the bathroom, especially at a McDonald's, I needed to be very safe and have a buddy with me because there was a guy who was having meet, meeting kids in McDonald's bathrooms and cutting off their, their manhood. What? And it was, I a never heard that story. It was a perpetual fear of mine as a kid, but um, I think the did real just, satanic. Did you just come up with that? Or was that like a real urban legend? No, I, I really believe that I was told that. I don't know if it was another kid or what, cause I was young, <laughs> but I legitimately thought that some dude out there in a McDonald's bathroom was going to try to cut off my wiener. Wow. This pivoted <laughs> so quickly. What was that? What was, Dressed like a clown, like Ronald McDonald. Would <laughs> that would just, well, maybe it was would just gay right? vibes. <laughs> um, but no, that McDonald's though. What was that? It's a good reason to av avoid McDonald's. Yeah, True. no, for real. <laughs> but I, I mentioned that because we lived in a very interesting time that would be unrecognizable to my kids or to any or your kids or anyone. Um, so there does seem to be this generational change that's happened. The advent of the internet. Um, oh, real quick. I do want to say you talking about not being into politics at all. And I think when you're talking to Buck Johnson, you'd said, you know, I'm just a Christian and that's it. Yeah. And I want to tell you, I, that's my vibe. That's where, I, that's where I am. And that's what like I've condensed it down because I was for a while I was in kind of political circles and people all have these labels that they use and i was like none of these labels fit and so i made up my own which was patient monarchist because yeah. i believe in a king and i'm waiting for him to return yeah as patiently as i can <laughs> um that man that's good um but like i was saying there there have been these generational changes and so you you wrote youth of the apocalypse in um i mean essentially for gen x it's that that's your generation. That's what you grew up in. And, you know, uh, I would love to hear a little bit about I mean, I've read that part of the book, but I'd love to hear a little bit about your reflections and how you started writing that book and death to the world and uh, how that manifested itself and how it's been good 
and how, like I said earlier, I'd love to hear how you would write it today because we live in a post 9-11, post-internet world, and it's very different. It is very different. And I have an anecdote that I can share with you in a little bit that really illustrates that. But um, so I was commissioned after I became a novice in the monastery to try to reach out to young people because I was in music scene. I had connections and stuff like that. Then the abbot was a smart guy and he kind of figured out, hey, we can utilize that to try to do a mission, you know. And so I started the Death of the World with another monk that um, was not really familiar with that culture at all. And um, then he asked me to write a book that was kind of like the summation of Death of the World. And um, we disseminated the magazines, the Death of the Worlds, all over the world. I mean, we started off at coffee shops and and music venues and record stores, and it got took on a life of its own and it ended up becoming a subscription thing where people would be, you know, write in to subscribe for a dollar. I mean, it just covered postage. Um, and we would be mailing these things all over the world. I mean, literally in Europe and, you know, people, a lot of people in prisons really enjoyed it. Um, and the book kind of became the same thing as the continuum of that. Um, and yes, when I was writing that book, I was steeped in eighties and nineties culture, um, because of my American upbringing. And so obviously a lot of that first part of that book is just me, you know, espousing what I came out of, um, which you're talking about Gen X. I actually learned about that phrase right before I wrote that book. And I thought that was a very interesting thing. So I read more about, I think it was Copeland that came up with that concept. I read a little bit more about it and I was like, he's kind of right. He kind of, you know, it's hard to break generations into certain like baby boomers and blah, blah, blah. Um, and it, it, they do kind of overlap a little bit, but the Gen X thing really did resonate with me because he was showing that there was a generation of people that were hopeless and that were also, you know, yeah. kind of counterculture that was kind of new. Like America had always been a place of hope um, from, you know, pre-World War II to, to, to uh, you know, the 60s. And that's when it started to, to de uh, decline, I think. Um, so while I was writing it, I was putting all that in there and trying to bridge the gap between the young modern nihilist person to the saints and it seemed to work and i i honestly thought that it was a, an exercise in a waste of time <laughs> i did not think it was going to work and it 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 did and glory be to god you know it did for you know many reasons i had so many people write me and um tell me their stories about how some you know older adult gave them the book and it changed their work their life you know it ex explained all the stuff that we were talking about earlier ex explained where they were coming from and it explained where they could go <laughs> um, right. and heal, healing. Um, but what, what really was interesting to me is, okay, I wrote the book, got out there. I was in Alaska in a deserted monastery at that point in time. I wrote it all on a ream of paper by hand with a, a, a pencil. Um, and it was all by those oil lamps with the little wick in it, you know, where you put the yeah. in there because we didn't have electricity or running water. So it was all just, you know, old school and um got it published and then after several years i decided to leave the monastery after well, after seven years and it was jarring to me how much the world had changed in just seven years it was shocking and it was terrifying um i i knew what it was like when i went in the monastery clearly um and then i went through this detox for 10 years of everything worldly just get it out of you you know and and focus yeah. on a holy lifestyle a lifestyle of repentance and and focus on scripture and Christ and everything. Right. And when I left, everything seemed different in a really 
a dark, scary way. One of the topics when I first landed that I saw, I didn't have television or anything, but I saw something somewhere. I forget where, an airport or something. I don't remember where it was. And the national discussion was about a stain on a blue dress from the president. Yeah. I don't want to go into it because it's disgusting, but sure. I, I was shocked that that right. was the open discourse. I, I was dumbfounded. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I mean, a, a decent society would recognize that that was wrong and deal with it, but that it wouldn't become what it, what it became, you know? And that was largely because of media. If, we, if, if, if there was no media, this thing would have probably never even been known, to be honest. But um, that, that was the thing that really struck me is media had become the new God in American mm -hmm. culture, which has also spread throughout the world. You know, there are cultures throughout the world um, in Asia and, and all over the place that have um, built into them this moral system because they know that virtue and morality is what holds cultures together. Mm -hmm. And this American thing infiltrated cultures like Japan, which had this huge honor system and, and um, a whole way of conducting yourself in society with honor and nobility of, of spirit. And the media broke all that down and disseminated all of this evil very fast. And obviously the internet was a huge part of that. Um, it, it started off before that with just your normal cable television. And then with the advent of internet, sin had become completely normalized, uh, absolutely normalized to a degree that really frightened me because usually there's always a checks and balance in cultures, even primitive cultures. Oh, we're talking primitive cultures with loincloths, you know, hunting with, you know, spears out in the woods. They had a social hi hierarchy and a structure and a moral value. And we lost that. And we also have technology. I mean, that is a scary, scary proposition, which is why having children in this age is terrifying. I have two um, from my wives and then I have three through marriage. So five, and I have to confront this challenge on a very moment-to-moment -moment basis with all of them. The uh, the older young adult ones are actually doing great and have resisted and have become amazing people, but the younger ones that are still going through high school, oh my goodness, it is. I mean, you can have my my stepson can be in his bedroom at eleven o'clock at night. This this is not going to really happen, but I'm just saying any kid can be in his bedroom at eleven o'clock at night. And go on an app called Tinder or whatever and find mm -hmm. somebody else and show up somebody where to, to meet them. I mean, that is terrifying. Yeah. Absolutely terrifying. And the same thing applies to drugs. They can go on Snapchat and find drugs in a heartbeat. Hmm. I have for a long time wondered if like all of the, the product of the sexual revolution, it, this is the fruit of that finally coming to bear. And while I do think that there were positives as far as um, the role of women in society that came out of the sexual revolution, it also like denigrated the role of like motherhood and femininity and many other things. I'm not I'm not the type of person who thinks that women should be shoved back into the kitchen. I, I definitely appreciate those aspects of the sexual revolution. But when I see um, that you had this lapse in time where you weren't part of the world, and then to have something so overtly sexual be the first thing that kind of like smacks you in the face. That was one of the questions I was going to ask you and you actually like hit on it before I got there, which was what was the most shocking thing when you came out of the monastic life back into the world and just the um, the way that 
the sexual revolution had been ratcheted up in yeah. just that seven years. Th th that's the first thing that I that came to mind when I left is um, human sexuality, which honestly, I mean, it, it's the way we create life and participate with God to create mm -hmm. human life. I mean, it's the most important important thing that we can do as people and that had gotten denigrated to a degree that um that is um it's almost satanic the way mm -hmm. it is propagated in our culture now um and and yes the role of women change change a little bit and and so on but what i see is that the sexual revolution absolutely decimated um human um uh, our our role in partaking of the divine nature in the creative mm -hmm. process it destroyed it yeah. and it made it um a recreational thing and then you top that with the legalization of what we're you know we're going through now with the u.s you know um using you know abortion as birth control, birth control. right uh, and and um the the numbness that we have come to life and also not just num numbness but we've almost we've converted into a culture of death and all of that was it was present when I was younger, but it was absolutely not normal. It was not normalized. And seeing all that normalized combined with drugs, you have sexual revolution and you have this drug addiction situation. And those two right. things combine at the same time was really combined in the sixties and seventies. And then to today, now we have, you know, people are dying from overdoses, you know, moment every, every few minutes, I think it is something crazy. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, we have this death culture that is completely doesn't understand self-control and the place that sex has in, in our lives. Um, it, it, is, it has ruined it has ruined humanity <laughs> to a degree. And I was telling my wife this um, recently. I did a lot of studies in Roman history. Um, even the Romans wouldn't have done that to this degree. Yeah. Yeah. It had, That's the crazy it, it, thing. It, it wasn't good that they had these components to their life lifestyle. But it was nothing like what it is here in good old U.S. of A. It's it was nothing like what we have here, um, where you have sex on demand, abortion on demand, um, and drugs on demand. Where you basically, and this is beautiful um, if you think about it from the devil, his point of view. How can I just completely destroy these people? I'm going to do it through pleasure. Yeah. Right. Serotonin. Have you read serotonin? I'm going to pump it and pump it and pump it until they're not alive anymore. Have you read Brave New World by Aldous Huxley? No, I know. I know of the book. Yeah, well, I mean, that's so a lot of people, um, you know, when they're talking politically rather than um, in, in the way we're talking, will kind of say what we're going through right now is George Orwell. And I'm like, maybe 30 percent, like 70 percent of what we're going through right now is Aldous Huxley Huxley. And uh, so essentially in that situation, you know, people were grown in labs rather than having parents. They were introduced to sex games as children. Um, they uh, they they numbed their senses and gave them pleasure. They had a drug called Soma that they would use to, to make sure that they were happy and not asking questions and not reading and not doing the things they need to do. And so when I when I hear this, when I hear what you're talking about and I hear where we are, it's we're in a brave new world and yeah. it's yes well, here's the scary part this is the part that really shocks me that people are that numbed out and stupid that experiment has been tried many times just recently in romania in russia in serbia in germany 
in um, some parts of Eastern Europe. It had already got, they already tried this stuff. They already did these techniques on the population and did it work? It backfired. But I, we've actually crossed so many lines now that I don't think people are, they're, they're too numbed out to actually be able to reflect like that and yeah. see it and also wage the war that they have to in, internally to fight against it. Yeah. it. It really is a frightening numbness that we have embraced. It's like zombies. I went to see Metallica with my wife um, a few years back. Um, I stopped listening to punk and metal music um, for spiritual and religious re reasons. But back then, we were still listening to some of that stuff. And after the Metallica concert, everybody, thousands and thousands of people looked like zombies, complete dead zombies. Their eyes looked dead. Their bodies looked dead. Their souls looked dead. And it reminded me of that story of St. Xenia and her husband. And mm. it also reminded me of the story of... Um, from St. Theophon the Recluse in his writings with that woman who saw that same thing, the deadness in culture. Those were small echelons of society. <laughs> now we're talking about the majority of our culture, which yeah. also explains why, like I said, mental illness and all these things, uh, and, you know, like this whole, this whole deal with the shootings, um, they're so commonplace now. And the answer is so obvious. It's so obvious that we have a spiritually sick, society very very sick society that doesn't know how to even know that it's sick to get a diagnosis from a doctor and the doctors mm -hmm. are in on it too yeah. it's so sick it really starts right in the a little house with a, two people procreating and creating life and doing it right yeah mm -hmm. we're not doing that I was, anymore i was about to ask you in light of that like what's the cure is the cure asceticism is the cure that we all you know because that's not going to happen so what you know like what are we doing possibly if we're listening to you and saying gosh what this man is saying is really speaking to me i feel this i see this i sense it in our society what can i personally do um that, as a lay person the answer is not asceticism and the church has taught that i i, I believe that I'm not sure when the end of the world is going to be. Honestly, I use the word apocalypse for, uh, you know, kind of to describe how horrible things are. Yeah. Um, and it's pretty accurate. And it might be, you know, the end times or might not. doesn't really matter. The, it, what matters is that we do the work, you know. Um, yeah. And with, we're talking about the end time Christians. And this is including St. John Maximovich, who was just celebrated, talking about this very same thing. Is those last Christians, if they can hold on to their faith... <laughs> You know, it, they don't need to be great ascetics. They need to just maintain and stay on the path, no matter how many times they get knocked, knocked, knocked off of it, to stay on the path. And if you can pull off small amounts of asceticism, great. But if you can pull off even small prayers every day in your mind and heart while you're walking around, you know, you see somebody on the streets and you say a prayer. You're in the grocery market and you see somebody that looks like they're having a really hard day. You say a prayer, you know. These little these little moments where we can just exercise our faith inside of our inside of our soul and do that in a way that can um, the the world can see that um, yeah not a demonstration but as a you know this person they're different you know and whatever it is they got, want that um, I, I I don't know I think just the the minimum is what what we need to try to pull off but it, the more that we can maximize that the better but really the key lies in, in unseen warfare the more that we practice unseen warfare the more that we are a light or a better person despite all of our sins and all of our flaws 
the more we're practicing this internally all the time, the, um, the better we will be and the better those around us will be. And I, I, I firmly believe that. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a conversation we've had in different ways with different people over different um, topics is, you know, there isn't, there is a lack of self-control and most people at this point want to seemingly want to change the world, but they're not tending their own garden. And, and so one of the things that I talked about today, cause I'm, I'm reading through um, Exodus right now. Um, but I was, I was thinking about these different heroes of the faith that were in the, that were in the Bible. And you have all of these deeply flawed people. You have Abraham who uh, essentially gave his wife away to two different uh, people because he was afraid that uh, they would kill him and try to take her from them. And so he told them they were, his, uh, they were, she was his sister. There was Jacob who was deceptive and stole a blessing. You have David who uh, wasn't able to build the temple because he had too much blood on his hands. Yeah. And it's, it's, that's what's so beautiful. And what I'm going through as I'm reading through the Bible this time is looking at these people who are deeply flawed. And that's what the Bible's about. It's not about you finding a hero and latching on to a hero. It's about mm -hmm. you being able to see what they do. And that's, what's cool about the Bible as well is it's not like God's not telling you what they had in their heads. Most of the time, they're not telling you their motives. They're not telling, he's not saying this was an evil thing. Most of the time, a lot of the times it's, he tells the story and you're, considering what he what these people are doing and it's wrong and then you see the consequences and so he's telling you by acting and mm -hmm. so one of the things that i was talking about this morning was um i think that for those of us who are already in the fold um we need to start cultivating our level of trust in god and that level of faith because if you read hebrews you have the hall of faith that mentions abraham as a hero Moses, all of these guys I just mentioned are essentially mentioned as heroes of the faith, but mm -hmm. it wasn't because of what they did, but because of who they trusted and who they followed and all those things that they did came out of their faith. And so like, that's kind of where I'm, where I am right now is a lot of people think you can just work your way through and get there. And asceticism would be a, a, a part of that. But before these works occur naturally through God, you have to have that faith. You have to trust. And it's, I don't know, I, don't, I could be way off, but that, those are my thoughts right now. <laughs> so, so I'll, I'll, I'm going to riff off of that. Um, several years ago, my kids were kind of old enough to where I could, you know, try to go back to doing some form of ministry or whatever. And so I woke up one morning and I prayed to God, God, use me. I, I, I kind of did my family part. I raised the kids and they're at a certain point now. And, um, he, he, he sent me, and this was really out of the blue. My priest calls me and says, um, I have a person he's on crack. He's been on crack for a long time. He needs help. Can you talk to him? And that started this whole thing of these people flowing through my, my life, my, my, my wife, both of us, um, work as a team on this of girls that were sex trafficked and drug addicts and all this kind of stuff. And the whole time my wife and I are like, barely pulling off our days, you know, our lives. I stopped doing my morning prayers, you know, and I just kind of feel like a complete failure. And one day my wife and I were talking about being complete losers, but we're able to at least try to do, you know, something good. And this, I had the same realization. I, I had the realization that 
in the scriptures and also all the way through the hagiography and the lives of the saints, that God is actually an expert at working through very messed up people. Mm-hmm. He's an expert at that. It's almost kind of his best trait is that yeah. he can take people who are broken and who are sinners and do his work through them so flawlessly. And I, I find that a, a huge encouragement, you know, that the Old Testament's full of those people. Um, the New Testament has them too. Paul, he was standing there holding people's garbs while they were going to kill somebody. I mean, that's yeah. not a cool thing to do, you know? <laughs> um, I, I take I take great comfort in what you're saying. And I, I have for many, many years because I, you know, the monastery kind of makes you feel like you really are to aspire to holiness on some level, you know? Right. And even in the monastery, you're, you don't feel it. You don't feel like you're ach- achieving holiness, you know? Right. And when you're out here, it's <clears throat> times, well, a hundred times worse to try to pull off a religious life in this modern age. Um, I know people that do it and do it really well, and I have great respect for them. But I'm a, I'm a massive, completely massive sinner, and I take great comfort <laughs> in God working through broken people. Yeah, I, I mean, Joseph in uh, Genesis, it said it perfectly because uh, his he said, you know, because he was sold into slavery in Egypt. Yeah, and then he God used him to collect enough grain to essentially save the entire land of Egypt yeah. and surrounding countries. And he was re- reunited with his brothers who sold him into slavery. And he they they just threw this banger of a verse right at the end of uh genesis where he said what you intended for evil yeah god used for good and saved many lives i love that that's my favorite like you said that's my favorite thing about god is his ability to turn evil into good yeah there is a a comment in the chat that i kind of want to uh rewind back to um forest mommy had asked um unseen warfare equals leading by example and i think if you were ever familiar with the concept of what we mean by unseen warfare, that part might have seemed kind of confusing. So I was wondering if maybe we could go back a little bit and talk about how what that means unseen warfare and how leading by example is uh, part of it. Great. Yeah, you're 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 absolutely right. This is my favorite topic is unseen warfare, which is also known as spiritual warfare, yeah. spiritual combat, which basically is the war that's taking place every day inside our, our minds and our hearts. And we have been accustomed to sin, various sins, and um, they kind of sneak in and make their habits inside of us because we allow it. And then our job is to realize this and change the habits. And that process of changing those habits from habits of sin to habits that are holier or better or um, more more uh, on, on the side of God is spiritual, is spiritual warfare, unseen warfare. And it really, the, the, the battlefield is the soul. And the, um, the, uh, the weapons that we have are the virtues, one of the chief virtues being prayer and also love and humility, but also the, the other litany of, of virtues and us trying on a moment to moment basis to implement those. And, and that would, I mean, honestly, a, a, the simplest example is if you're driving your car and somebody cuts you off, your first thought is anger. Mm-hmm. And the person that's practicing un- unseen warfare is going to pray for that person. Yeah. They're going to catch the anger. They're going to have the anger, and that's okay. But if you can convert the anger in that moment and train yourself to convert the anger over time, the anger goes away and the virtue supplants it. And that holiness is being developed inside of your life. That would also apply to people 
that have issues with their parents. You know, I had a really hard time with my father. And every time I would think about my father, I had thoughts of resentment. And I learned through the monastery to convert that th thought of resentment to a thought of gratitude and compassion and forgiveness. So you take wow. those, you take those, those bad intentions, those, those sins, they're essentially sins, and you convert them to virtue. And that process is a lot of work, especially for the modern man, because our culture has no reinforcement foundation, structural components for this whatsoever. And like, like we talked about earlier, most primitive cultures and even developed cultures have some form of a structure built in, even the Romans, like we were talking, they had a structure built in. Right. We don't have that. And so we have to find it. In other words, find the gospel, find these teachings in the Bible and find these teachings in the church and read them and implement them on a moment to moment basis. And the, the cool part about this is the more that people practice this unseen warfare, the happier you become, the less anxiety you have, yes. the more grateful you are. Um, I had I suffered from, like I said, depression and anxiety, severe, you know, like yeah. suicidal ideation. And this process it actually, I, I believe I was bipolar too, and maybe some other stuff. Um, but it actually, it actually healed those areas of my my soul. That it actually worked, which is really, yeah. I mean, the church fathers aren't surprised by that. But I, I'm kind of amazed that right. you, this process of unseen warfare, you, you actually heal yourself. And once you do that, you're happier. And once you're happier, people around you get happier. It, it really mm -hmm. is contagious. Yeah. I I want to. Um, I too came from. Um, well, it sounds like you were saying for a time you embraced a secular or atheistic worldview. And I, too, embraced an atheistic worldview and then found my way to being an Orthodox Christian, which I am often sitting in liturgy, baffled by the fact that I'm sitting there. Like, why am I here? I don't belong here. How did I even get here? It, like, I'm confused by it. I don't understand. But I'm grateful beyond measure that I am. Like... It, it's confusing and um, awe-inspiring at the same time. And I think that a person who does kind of maybe come from a spiritually dead culture such as ours or, um, you know, an atheistic or a secular worldview might have that little grain of, uh, what is it, a mustard? The, the faith mustard the size seed. of a mustard seed. Yeah. But they don't have this great belief. And yeah. because they lack in this great belief, they feel that they cannot participate in what we're talking about. And for me, a very pivotal verse was always, um, I believe, help me with my unbelief. Yeah. And I, as someone who, um, my story uh, feels so close to yours, I wonder how you might talk to people who are in the secular world about embracing that mustard seed and what that means. Well, unseen warfare, back to unseen warfare, anybody can up, implement it or apply it. Anybody can. And I encourage anyone to do what I was just saying. Um, right. Because, like I said, it only Im improves your life. I mean, having a, a spiritual connection to direct, like specifically with God and with Jesus Christ can make you into a saint. I mean, it really can do that. And that's been proven thousands and thousands of times. But, um, you know, even Mother Teresa of Calcutta, the last, what was it, 15, 20 years of her life had that same, uh, that same question, help my, help my, help my unbelief. Like she had that same problem and she was doing the work of God on a scale that's just monumental. I mean, it's, it's incomparable. 
And I think that it's okay for us to have that question linger. And I think yeah. that that question goes back to what you're saying, wrestling with God, Israel, the yeah. word it means to wrestle with God. Um, it's okay for us to do that, you know, um, as long as we stay on the path the whole time and understand that even if there's moments where we don't understand our own faith or don't understand our belief or, or, or our belief wanes a little bit, we still just say, you know what, I'm sticking this out because I know that I'm going to die. Honestly, I'm going to die. Yes. And the one thing that I will carry with me is my soul. Yeah. And however I form that soul, that soul is going to be that way for a really, really long time. And I, I actually wrote a book for my daughters um, because I was worried that someday they would you know, fall away from the faith or, you know, if I died, I would want them to know their father's worldview. And this was the one of the one of the chapters in there is this this very thing that making the the wager with God. It's actually even if you doubt, it's still a better proposition, even if it didn't exist, which don't get me wrong, I, I, it, it exists. But even if it didn't exist, your life is far better living a life of virtue and prayer and kindness 100 percent because mm -hmm. just doing those things being kind being patient compassionate forgiving um loving self-sacrificing self-control all these things you will only be happier it just mm -hmm. it just is that simple which the greeks well, knew that well it's like um even so this makes me think of those studies that were done several years ago that found that if you it's essentially a fake it if fake it till you make it but when you smile choose to smile even if you don't feel it yep. your your actions transform your your inner yep. world yeah. right um and so one of the things that you you were talking about here with virtue and um it it reminds me of uh, in corinthians when uh paul said you know we need to take cap take our thoughts captive and make them obedient to christ yeah it's 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 that concept and i i i think this yeah. all spins back around to that conversation earlier about trust i think right. if there's anything you can do and it's hard it's hard to trust people it's hard to trust god especially if you haven't seen him or haven't heard him um but if you can trust and if you have these moments of spiritual warfare if you have these moments where you feel like you can't make it the the bible tells us that the name of jesus is above all other names that this is the name that can that can cast away demons and can cast away evil and if we can just have that little bit of truth and if you are feeling un, untrusting just say his name in those moments and tell me it doesn't change something in you in that trust comment um i often think of there were 12 people that were baffled confused <laughs> Um, completely lost. I mean, they were completely lost. And even in towards the, the latter part of their, of their life, 11, 11 of them trusted to the degree of dying brutal deaths. Yeah. Right. And, and no one, I mean, very few people were onto this idea at that time. You know, it was a very small movement. And they were, they just, they were willing to go all the way with it. And that trust was so deep in them, even though they didn't fully understand what they were doing. They didn't have all the theology of Gregory Palamas maximus the confessor and all that stuff um yeah trust 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 brought them um to to 12 12 12 thrones i mean yeah
Well, and, and that's why when I was writing that, because it was, it was a tweet that I wrote, but that's why I wrote it in the way that I did and the conversations I've been having lately is because you can have a, you can have conversations with people who have been in America, which is a Christian nation who come across these, these words, we call them Christianese at time at times, but I'm saying trust, but the word I'm saying in my head is faith. Yeah. And mm. so, you know, re recontextualizing that idea as trust, I truly believe in this world right now can communicate something very simple and something that's all throughout the Bible to yeah. people who wouldn't hear it otherwise. Yeah. And and so that's why I, I feel like I keep having this conversation in different places is because it's like, you know, even if like I, I we've gone through some stuff the last couple of years, everyone has. Mm -hmm. I have, especially in the last year, and um, I've been, God's been teaching me how to trust. And sometimes, despite my mind, despite my doubts, despite my fears, I know that nothing brings me more peace than when I'm sitting in the storm and I just say, I trust you. I, I'd like to tell a story if, if you have time. Absolutely. Yes. No, I, as, as I, I have like, I want to talk about the generational thing at some point, but yeah, I want to hear as much. We're here for you. I want to hear what you have to say. Trust. I want to riff off the trust thing. So I had one of my kids that ran away and got sex trafficked and got addicted to drugs and went down this really scary, frightening road, disappeared for a year and a half. And during that period of time, my wife and I would, um, you know, we encountered homeless people daily, honestly, and we would always give them money and ask them to pray for my daughter. Yeah. And we did that for that entire period of time. And every single time I was in my car giving somebody $10 bill and I said, Hey, I need a favor from you. They would lean down to me and say, what? And I, I would say, I have a daughter in trouble. Can you pray for her? And every single time they looked me in the eyes and said, I am going to pray for your daughter. Their trust, they're on the streets. You know, some of these people smelled like urine. I know they were on drugs and stuff, but they their trust in God was actually pretty, pretty strong. And it, it yeah. kind of fooled me. There were times when they would stop and hold my hand and the, the, the light would turn green and they would just pray and stare at me and the cars would be honking. Yeah. I mean, talk about trust and faith right there. Like the, the, so profound, so profound. Right. Well, and it's like when when we've been in the situation that we've been in, um, it's not as bad as what martyrs went through. It's not as bad as what's going on in the Chinese church. It's not as bad as any of these stories, but it's kind of a microcosm of the proof that when you were in the struggle, um, that's when faith flourishes the most. Mm -hmm. And uh, or conversely, if you're if you're not if you're not faithful, it, it leaves uh, for some people, but. I keep I keep finding that the more things go badly, the more I trust him. And it's it's a bizarre kind of counterintuitive thing that I'm dealing with. I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. How am I how is this happening? But it's like, but I do. I trust you more than I did yesterday. So here's what you're talking about. You're ta you're talking about the ancient philosophical question of why does God allow suffering? It's a, it's an amazing question that so many people have tried to answer over the course of time. And the church has a very straightforward answer for that. Suffering is really good for the soul. Mm -hmm. It just is. I'm sorry, but when my grandfather was dying of cancer, um, he was a cantankerous, angry, um, 
atheist. And when he got cancer and he was bedridden, he turned to my grandmother, who was a very devout Seventh-day Adventist, and said, teach me. I need to know now. And he spent wow. his last couple years, um, her reading to him, her praying with him, him completely turning his life over. And I promise you, cancer was the best thing that ever happened to him. And I know people don't like to hear that, but it was the best thing that ever happened to him. And he would be the first person to admit that. Suffering is so crucial for us. And even the small amount of suffering we have to go through, I mean, you know, most of our suffering is honestly internal anxiety about stuff yeah. that we have to control over. It's, it's, it's beyond. Guys, personally attacking me live on the stream. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, 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 I think it's really interesting because that tendency is like in the culture of Christianity too throughout history that um, whenever it's been persecuted, it flourishes. Yeah, yeah. The more they attack it, the more blood they shed, the more converts they had. It's an yeah. amazing thing that they brought these people into the Colosseum to tear them limb from limb, to make an example to their own population. This is what happens when you're a Christian. And people watched that and said, I want to be a Christian. That's That makes me feel goosebumps when I talk about something like that. It shouldn't have happened. There's no logic to it. True. It doesn't make sense in the in the human understanding, but it's it happened. There was a, that, go ahead. Um, there was a, um, a, a person that was uh, sick and they were frustrated and they felt like God was abandoning them. And the response, the cultural response to that question was, God is visiting you. So it's a complete flip of what we think suffering is. Suff suffering is a scourge. Suffering is something you must avoid at all costs, including death. Suffering is um, something that we need to cure. We need to find drugs for it. We need to make it go away. But in the Byzantine culture, in the Orthodox history, suffering was a visitation from God. And I think that that, that worldview just flipped over like that makes you view everything completely different, which are, like what you're yeah. talking about. Yeah. Suffering is a refining fire. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not easy to admit that, but it's it's completely true. Yeah. Oh, man. I am. I, I've, this has been such a great conversation. I've, I've enjoyed talking to you so much. Um, I did want to uh, talk to you about... Um, so the, that kind of generational change, what you've gone through. Um, so you, I, I heard you say that you were re rewriting portions of, um, youth of the apocalypse. And so, um, what's interesting about our conversation so far is we talked about the sixties and seventies, the free love, the drugs and all of that. And then you have, so they were rebelling from the silent generation or the greatest generation. And that's how they rebelled. And then you have Gen X that rebelled in some ways harder, even even than the those in the 60s and the 70s. And then after Gen X, you move into my generation, uh, Jessica's generation, the millennials. Yeah. Who we had half, not half anymore, but like we had several years of our lives without any kind of technology outside of what was on the TV to it being implanted in every bit of our lives and they the rebellion almost in that generation at least one form of it was like ultra conforming to the uh, the elites and what the the government says and social justice and these different concepts right but i don't know like it's it's hard to see the rebellion because it seems like we're all very not all of us, but you know, the, the generation as a whole is all very cooperative in the weirdest possible way. 
Um, but seeing as so many gen, uh, millennials are um, kind of, we're kind of in that, that realm, it seems like Gen Z is coming in and some of their rebellion is like traditional things, conservatism. And it's for yeah. some of them. And there's this battle with the media and with academia about how people should be and how this, do, how breaking down Culture biology, one. all kinds of things like that. Um, but how do you look into the world that we're in right now and rewrite youth of youth of the apocalypse? I, I've, I've been struggling with that because I'm look, looking through the eyes of all my kids, my five kids. Um, and what I'm finding, I'm not seeing a, pendulum swinging towards conservatism so much conservative values when you say that it's kind of a big bag of all kinds of messy stuff so it's really oh, hard absolutely. to use that word but what what, I, what i've have been seeing since the 2000s um and including your generation too you could be because you were formed kind of you know i would include millennials in that discussion um what i see and i i characterize this generation as the generation of apathy the generation of complete void of philosophical inquiry that the generation that has completely uh, uh, is subservient to how I feel now and how I can make myself feel good now, mm -hmm. the, the generation of, of extreme selfishness. And the Greeks had a great term for it. It's kind of misunderstood, but hedonism. Yeah. We, we are, we are in the phase of hedonism and yes, maybe there are some people that are, waking up and I, I see those converts coming through at my church and some of these people are my godchildren you know um it, there there's definitely people that are questioning things but as a as a generation as a culture i, I that's how i see it as the generation of apathy yeah. uh, the generation of selfishness the generation of ind individualism the generation of how can i make myself feel the way i want to feel and that I that actually worst <laughs> the worst uh place to be let me insert this idea into your mind as well it's been one that i've been talking about for a while um it seems that millennials and beyond i don't know how it's going in gen z i'm not gen z um we have been kind of a generation of identity crisis because it seems to me that with the advent of no-fault divorce with you know abortion on demand all these different topics that are coming up we have a lot of people who didn't have a dad and a mom who didn't have that that kind of not full but fuller picture of who god is through parents you know they didn't have their identity cemented and so if you take a look at social media if you take a look at m people in my age range you see a lot of people who are trying to find their identity and their affirmation in what's trendy and in what will get them those that um, serotonin and dopamine, all of these things, because they don't have a strong center and grounding in Christ or in maybe even in family. So I do think that that's a, a part of the problem is there is apathy. I think a lot of the apathy is due to how does that have anything to do with me? And I don't even know who I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> In the arcs that you see, the histogram that you see lines up with all of this. The more religion declines, the more family, you, the more you want to destroy the nuclear family, which I think is just bizarre to me that that's actually a normal idea. 
Mm-hmm. Um, the more that you do that, the more that violence increases and all these things we talk about, the addiction, yeah. the anxiety, the depression, the suicide, the, the murder, like all these things are, are completely in alignment with the decline of the, of, of family and religion. A hundred percent, percent. Do you um, see the possibility at all that we tend to have generation that will rebel against what their parents are doing? And so often I wonder all of these progressive parents who are sort of like forwarding this next level of the sexual revolution, that their children in rebellion might not actually seek that stability, that um, desire for, you know, something that stands as an actual pillar in their being that they'll get married, that they'll have children, that they'll go to church, and that the rebellion will be to turn back toward God. I wish that was the case, but um, I'm struggling even with the the last true rebellion, the subtitle of Youth of the Apocalypse. Um, the more that I am exposed to and research the current state of affairs, um, I, I, don't, I don't see this generation as being rebellious. I see them as completely just numbed out. I, yeah, I, don't I would... Fervor. Yeah. That punk rock thing. It's just not there. So even in like the young, say like the Gen Z, I guess, is the the next generation coming up, or maybe even now there's one after them. I'm getting older. I don't know. Um, that they might. So we have the millennials, and I certainly agree that there is that apathy and that deadness of philosophy and, and religion inside of that my generation. I will claim that all the way. Yeah. But if not, um, that would be an influence on the people who are younger. And I've heard them say that younger people do tre- trend more conservatively as far as like their um, their values go. And I don't mean necessarily in a political way. I mean, toward toward family values, for example. I, I, I really hope you're right. Um, but if t- Timothy, I think it's 2 Timothy is correct. And if Matthew 24 is correct, that's probably not going to be the case. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've I've been wanting to talk and and we have our big question after this, so we won't keep you too long. But mm-hmm. one question that I've wanted to talk to someone about for a minute is I think that when I'm looking at TikTok, at Twitter, um, not at Facebook because I don't like Facebook, um, Instagram, um, and the news, uh, I feel like there is a a kind of a small revival going in when it comes to Christianity. It's very understated, but there are some people that are waking up. But at the same time, I see a massive separation of the wheat from the chaff within Christianity. I see a lot of shaking up of bad institutions and stuff like that. And I I Mm -hmm. don't think I'm crazy, but I wonder if you've noticed any of that as well, that it, it seems like we're in a time of, of shake up in a huge way and it's about to amp up even more like an energy shift right i i i often try to look at this question from popular culture where is popular culture because mm-hmm. popular culture is the pulse of what's going on and um you're not i'm not seeing that in pop culture at all mm-hmm. right i think mm-hmm. that the, the interest in stupid movies these marvel movies that are just stupid (laughs) thank you i hate them i'm sorry that's just one example but you know you're not seeing stories on the big screen of great personalities like saint anthony the great that would make a great movie you know you're not seeing that stuff it's just not what's popular at all 
to be fair, they they recently had the Man of God movie about Saint Nectarios. Yeah. So um, I it, it wasn't like a blockbuster. They only played it for, I think, two days in U.S. theaters. But if you're interested in a fantastic movie about a wonderful saint, I recommend yeah. everyone who's watching, please go watch Man of God about St. Nectarios. It's about to be on um, Apple TV. I think. Oh, cool. So, oh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think I think you're right. I think that it seems that our our media is getting more vapid. It's becoming more politicized in a lot of ways which is really sad because it's like why do i why do i want to watch this like if like, like let, let's assume this is about escapism why would i want to escape into the problems of the world we have like why would mm -hmm. i want that but if it's not escapism if it's truly art and if it's building up humanity in some sense why aren't we having better stories and that's that's something that that i'm very interested in i'm a story guy it's why I love reading the Bible and seeing how those little pieces go together. Or I'm seeing how God decided to show himself through humanity. Um, but like the other day I was on TikTok and there's a, a TV show called The Boys, um, which was <gasps> once a Boys. comic book by oh, Garth Ennis. And I just said, because I read the comic book and I just said on there, they're not worth reading. They're poorly written and um, it's shock value with no story essentially. And more people on that stupid app argued with me, called me names, <laughs> etc. We're gonna argue after the fee. No, no, actually. No, no, no. You don't have to argue with me because you've not read the comic book. No, I haven't read the comic book. Comic book is trash. I'm talking about the okay. comic book. The show is really good. I'm sorry. That's not the but top. The, it's not what we're here to talk about. I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> All I'm saying is it was amazing to me to watch these people argue against things that are pretty objective if you actually read the book there's no cohesive story the shock value isn't isn't played into the story it's just there it's just poor writing but these mm. people are so worried about you taking away their depravity from them in some <laughs> sense and i'm like what is oh, yeah. happening here um i don't think you're wrong and i think that there's a lot of vapid crap out there and i i wish it would be better i don't know who's going to write it but I would be willing to help anyone who wants to write some good stories. You know, on this topic, again, if you look at popular culture, which is music, media, TV, books, movies, um, it's a ginormous propaganda machine to push mm -hmm. sin. It's all yeah. about pushing sin. Look at the Grammys, look at the, the uh, you know, all these, these award ceremonies and where you have girls dressing up like prostitutes dancing in front of everybody. I mean, is it that that's where that's where our culture is unfortunately. I don't I don't have a lot of um positive things to say about it, but I yeah. you know, again, Matthew 24. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I I curious about this boys thing now. I'll check that out probably and see what what I think it, about. It's, it's not for it's not for kids. It's not <laughs> safe for work watching just to right. let you know. Right. <laughs> um, um, and that's interesting because that does, and I know we're getting close to our final question. And it's so interesting that what we're talking about is arcing that way because it's like there is this like lack of hope for anybody looking around at the culture who might want to embrace the things that are good, cling to what is good. And if you want to cling to what is good and you're looking around, you're at a lack of things to cling to. Yeah. Um, and that's why we try to make a show. Let's find the good things. Let's find the good hey. stories. I, 
I'm, I'm not writing a, a screenplay, but I'm able to talk to Justin about his story, which is a good story, which could be in a movie. Like, could you imagine that movie? We, I'm sure we could dress it up real nice. A dwarf, very I, cool. Start off a dwarf in it. Easy. I mean, think about that scene. <laughs> it writes, it's, it's, you couldn't write. I love how reality is often so much stranger than fiction. Totally. It's, it's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so she did, she did cue me up. So, um, this show, when we rebranded it from its old form and changed the format and changed what we talk about, uh, we decided early on that this show needed to be a show of hope, a little beacon of hope for the world. And so one of the ways that we do this is we do bring it up in the conversations, but the last question that we ask every guest is, you know, in the last two years, people have been depressed, they've lost their jobs, they've lost family members, um, all sorts of terrible things have happened. People feel desperate and depressed. And so what we like to do is try to ask, is to ask the person that comes on, you know, what is the thing in your life? It could be global, local, um, in your household, whatever scale you want, but what's something that is giving you hope and the motivation to carry on right now that might inspire our audience in some way? Well, the easy answer is my kids. Um, mm -hmm. I've been health issues, you know, and I want to be able to, have as much time on this earth as I can to be with them because they are, they're the future and they're amazing. All, all five of them somehow, I don't even know how it worked, but they're amazing. <laughs> so there's a tremendous amount of hope in them, but I find, I find hope every day. Every time I say the Jesus prayer, when I'm just doing mundane things, I find tremendous hope. Like prayer is such a healing thing in that very moment. You can draw down all the power of heaven right into you. And you can blast it onto somebody else right next to you. I find a lot of hope in in, in praying um, yeah. as, as much as possible. And just for those of you who might not be familiar, the Jesus prayer is a short, Cam put it up. I was about to do the same thing. Um, a short prayer that you can say to yourself unceasingly, as St. Paul says, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And also, if you're praying for someone, you can say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on my mother. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on my wife. Um, this is a, a all-use prayer, and you should make use of it as often as you possibly can. Run it on a loop. Like, just use it. It's so powerful. And, and the, the word mercy in that prayer comes from the word ileson, which means to heal. Kyrie eleison. Yeah. Right. To Correct. heal. God, heal me. God, heal that person. And that there's, there's nothing better. <laughs> That's all we yeah. all need is healing. I'll even be in traffic and like a car will pass me. And I'm like, Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on that white car. Exactly. Like you can literally <laughs> bless anything. And whoever's in that car, I want them to get to where they're going safely. So it's like... um. Pray for everyone all the time. Pray for the birds. It doesn't matter. Like right. the trees. You, If you want to learn how to trust God, start actively praying for your enemies. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm telling you, that's, that, that's something that I've instituted in my, my, my yep. morning prayers, and it is hard to do. Yeah. It's hard to do. But if yeah. you want to learn the heart of God, you need to be willing to forgive the unforgivable. Amen. Um, I, I highly don't recommend praying for humility. 
or patience. <laughs> yeah, right, right behind you, you get slapped with all kinds of humiliation. Like I did that once for about a month. I was being embarrassed and embarrassed, and I was like, "Okay, you need on me, so give it to me." Right. Be careful what you ask for, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, Justin, I've enjoyed the heck out of talking to you. Um, I honestly just want to um, talk to you more in different avenues other than this. But also, if you've if you're ever interested in coming back on, I would love to talk to you again. I and it. I know Jessica yeah. would as well. Um, but we'll we'll let you go. Uh, I don't. So is there any place you I know there's uh, death to the world dot com where people can look at the zine. Is there anything else you want to share with people where they can find anything you've done? The quick and the dead um, little. Uh, I guess it's an EP that you did. Uh, absolute banger. Thanks. You got to love hearing a hymn in, in punk. Like that's, that's wild. And I, I, I love that. I would like to give a plug for unseenwarfare.net. Okay. Unseenwarfare.net. It ha it's a manual on how to do what I was talking about earlier. And it's all okay. quotes from the church fathers and the saints. And it's all their wisdom just compiled into um, a website, which is going to become a book. That. That's amazing. I can't wait for the book. I'm so excited. And um, if you guys don't know what he's talking about, The Sayings of the Desert Fathers is a book. It's available on Netflix. And um, that book is mysterious and wonderful in the way that it can improve your life. I know I, I personally, I know you're trying to go. I just want to tell my Desert Fathers story really quick. Um, I had a cousin who I haven't been able to um, talk with for many, many years. I was racking my brain on how to make up with him. And I was also at the same time reading the St. Anthony section of sayings from the Desert Fathers. And while I didn't read a solution to the problem of me and my cousin not communicating anymore, I was reading St. Anthony's wisdom. And in the middle of the night that night, I popped up in my bed, sat bolt upright and said, I know what to do. And I sent him a gift. It was a thing of artisanal beef jerky. <laughs> and I wrote a note that said, sorry, I've been a jerk. I hope we can put our beef behind us, <laughs> which I think is kind of cute. And it kind of broke the ice. And it wasn't, you know, I didn't in the moment when I was reading St. Anthony's words, I didn't realize they were affecting my mentality yeah. about how I need to see myself in that situation. And then three in the morning, I popped up in my bed. I think I woke my husband up going, I know what to do. Um, so yeah, get that book because it's going to help you in ways you can't even like fathom. Amen. And when, when that book comes out or you finish, you finish up, um, youth of the apocalypse, please come back on yes. and let's, let's yes. talk about what you're doing. And I'd love to read it and just discuss things with you. Sounds so, great. I, 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 let's let's keep in touch um thank you so much for coming on you're welcome anytime all right thanks man god bless you bye. god thank bless you. you bye all right that was awesome i thought so yeah um so <laughs> beyond that i have to go through my rigmarole so you know what's coming up um, i'm going to start off by telling you what the next four episodes are because i'm i'm like that next week we're talking to our friend hex from twitter um, he grew up in the nation of Islam, and I've never known someone who grew up in the nation of Islam. And so I have tons of questions, particularly about Jacob and his experiments that led to the white race. So join us next week for that conversation. Um, after that, we're going to be talking to a girl I met called Kayla Cox. She 
was she i don't know if you think she was raised in it but she got caught up in the world of the hebrew roots movement and mm. torah observant christianity which is a very interesting thing that's making a resurgence it's one of the things that paul and the, the in the different church fathers fought in the first century the, the judaizers it's the same concept but she was in that world and left to come back to um little o orthodox christianity mm -hmm. and i'm going to ask her about that um after that our good friend kim kim shang is going to come back on for our press pressure release last episode of the month conversation um, and then she's great. And it's been a while since we've talked last time we talked, we talked about memento mori's and, um, death and we talk about death a lot. And I have some plans yeah. for death talks that I haven't told you about yet, Jessica. Interesting topic. <laughs> and then after that, our good friend, Monica, who couldn't make it last week is slated to start off our August shows, um, hey. at the beginning of next month. So, um, beyond that, if you'd like to join us, if you'd like to, to pay into what we're doing here and what we're creating, you can go to patreon.com slash the mad ones. There are perks. Um, check that out there. If you want a shirt, if you want to see, to show the world that you like our little podcast, we are the mad ones.com slash store. I'm on Twitter at ham Carlos. Jessica's on Twitter at soup canarchist. Um, if you're listening, you can watch this every Wednesday. Um, except for next month. We'll talk about that later. But uh, every Wednesday, 8.30 p.m. Eastern time at youtube.com slash the mad ones. We're also on Rockfin and Odyssey and Rumble if you don't love YouTube and you want to watch. Um, if you're watching and would rather listen, we're on all podcatchers and we are at wearethemadones.com where you can download them directly. And don't forget to hit subscribe and like if you are watching us on YouTube because that's going to bump us up in the algorithm. Appreciate it, guys. Yeah, we need our, our watch hours up so that we can finally monetize on YouTube. So liking, subscribing, watching whole episodes that you missed will help us out. Um, yes, so that's you. it. Um, so with that, my dear friends, um, you have a chance to be a light in the world. So go light it up.